Good evening. I've been looking forward to being here, and uh, I realized in those first couple songs that you have a real singing culture here, and maybe I'll be preaching to the choir, uh, but I enjoy preaching to the choir. Uh, thank you for the warmth uh, by which you have received us so far this evening. And I want to start tonight with uh, 225 in the Life Songs. I came, I came down here without a pitch pipe, believe it or not, so the brother who led the singing, could you give us the key of A-flat? <clears throat> no soul, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty, Hold me with thy powerful hand, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more, feed me till I want no more, open Crystal fountain whence the healing streams do flow. Let the fire cloudy pillar lead me on my journey through. Strong deliver, strong deliver. Be now still my strength and shield, be still my strength and shield. Now that song does not tell you who the writer is. I never noticed in the life songs that they have Thomas Hastings there. Uh, before the uh, weekend is out, I will talk a little bit about Thomas Hastings, but he did not write this song. The writer of this song was William Williams. Does anybody know who he is? Did you ever hear William Williams before? How many have heard of John Wesley? Well, that is very interesting because at the very same time that John Wesley was uh, spearheading a revival in England, just right to the west in the, the uh, section of Wales, William Williams was experiencing a revival with his people. Uh, and he, it was at the very same time, he's a contemporary of John Wesley, he did a work that was very similar, but he wrote 900 songs. He was sort of the John Wesley and the Charles Wesley and the Isaac Watts all wrapped together in one person. But the interesting thing about that Welsh revival in the early 1700s, which was to be repeated a century later, was that it was not a preaching revival, it was a singing revival. There was a little bit of preaching done, but uh, it wasn't long after uh, the preaching got started that somebody would lead off in a hymn and uh, one of uh, William Williams' songs, and the Spirit of God came on those people with the singing, and many people were converted during that time. But not only that, he set the whole country singing, and this song was sort of the theme song. And if you had gone there uh, early in the morning when the miners were on their way to work, you would have heard them singing one of his hymns, probably this one frequently, and for years afterward, uh, no public meeting was closed without this song. It became practically the, the uh, national anthem of Wales. But because of the singing, 
there was a tremendous outpouring of God's Holy Spirit and a moving of God upon this uh, little uh, area of Wales. So <clears throat> I just mentioned that because I want to talk tonight about the reason why we need to sing the new song. There are a lot of people who think that singing is just an inspirational exercise. It sets the tone for the meeting. Uh, it's uh, something we use to fill in the spaces during the service. Uh, it inspires people. It encourages people. But I don't think people see music or singing as a resource just like prayer. And that's what I would like to show you this evening from the scriptures. The Bible actually has a lot more to say on this subject than what most people realize. And if people would realize that singing is a resource and that they, they should use it just like they use prayer, and in fact, along with prayer, uh, I think uh, we would get a proper perspective and perhaps would get more out of our use of song than what we sometimes do. Would you turn tonight, if you have your Bibles, to Second Chronicles? <clears throat> it's interesting that you mentioned Asaph. Uh, was that, where did you get the name, uh, Brother Leon, Asaph, for the scripture reading tonight? W was his name listed there? Okay, I, had, I hadn't noticed that. Well, we have Asaph here too. Uh, this is the famous or the very well-known story of Jehoshaphat being threatened by three nations, the nations of uh, Moab, Ammon, and Edom, and of course, he was just a little nation of Judah, and they were tremendously outnumbered, and so he didn't know what to do, so he went to the, to the temple, he proclaimed a fast, and all the people gathered together, and uh, then he, he prayed a prayer uh, where he reminded the Lord that he was uh, the ruler over the whole world, no heathen nation could stand before him, that this land had been given to Abraham, God's friend, and that he promised to help them if they brought their troubles to the sanctuary. And then he reminded them that these people that were attacking them were people that they had befriended when they came through on their uh, journey from Egypt because Moab, Ammon, and Edom were all relatives of these people, and they had not attacked them. And he says, now look how they're repaying us. And Lord, just for the sake of justice, you need to help us. So <clears throat> we want to break in here at verse 13. I just want to call uh, something to your attention. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Then, I want you to notice who this, these people are. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. So we already had introduced tonight, Asaph was a singer. He was one of three people that David appointed, which we'll get to later in this message, uh, for a very special role in Israel. Uh, he was a singer, but the thing you're going to notice in this passage is he also was a prophet. And he was the one that told Israel, you won't have to fight in this battle. And then they went out singing and didn't fight in the battle. Now, I'm re relating this in, on the heels of this story about whales. Here we have another instance where singing was the vehicle by which God worked among these people, and they didn't have to fight at all. And you could talk about Luther, of whom it was said that he did more damage by his songs than he did by his sermons. You could talk about the Anabaptists, uh, who were known for the power of the song that they sang. And so the, the first thing I'd like to talk about tonight 
is that songs result in supernatural enablement. I don't think we think about that uh, sometimes. Like I said, we think of songs as inspirational. I don't think we think of them in terms of a resource. They are a resource. They result in spiritual, supernatural enablement. Paul and Silas prayed and sang in that prison. And you know what happened. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, it's true that we can, we can express the joy of the Lord without singing, but singing is a very, very important aspect of expressing the joy of the Lord. And it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so there's real strength there when we sing. We had visitors in our community here a couple years ago. Uh, his name was Dicio. He was from Argentina. His wife was Olivia. She was an American and they had spent their whole life in uh, full-time service, and they were visiting in this country in the city of Atlanta. And uh, they came to visit us, and she brought in her concert harp, and Jeffrey, our son, who is no longer living, played the piano, and we all sang. We had a wonderful time together singing. And then th this story is associated with, with their ministry. They were in Atlanta, <coughs> staying in a hotel, motel, and... Uh, while they were there, there were some murders took place in the city, and the uh, city officials had sent word out through the city that nobody was to supposed to have their doors unlocked. They were to keep their doors locked. They were to be uh, suspicious of strangers because there were two thugs loose in the city that, that had committed a couple murders. But they didn't hear the warning. And they left their motel door open because they were expecting visitors that evening, and they wanted them to just be able to walk in and be welcome. Well, in walked these two guys. And they ordered them to the floor, and their pattern with the other people they murdered was then they shot them. Uh, but, and, and Dicio did that. He got down on the floor like they told him to. But Olivia did not. She, she was sitting on the edge of the bed when they walked in the door, and she stood up and she walked toward them singing a, a, a hymn. And she just kept singing. They kept ordering her down, but she kept singing until she was practically nose to nose with these guys, and they turned and ran. Now, it won't always end that way, but the question that I, I would have liked to ask before I told the story is, we as non-resistant people are often asked, what would you do if, if somebody came and attacked your family? It'd be interesting to know how many of you would have, the first thing you would have said is, we would sing. Uh, that's a resource. And I think most people in that situation would pray. But I think, and the reason I'm talking about this tonight is I want you to think in terms of singing as a resource. And the reason why this is a resource is because God is the origin of singing. He's the one that created song. In fact, at the creation, he, all the stars sang for joy. I mean, music was a very important part even of the creation. And so when God hears his song, he's attracted to that song. In fact, my next point is songs cause God to dwell in our experience. Psalm 22.3 says he inhabits the praises of his people. And so when you're in a difficult situation, it's, it's only reasonable. It's, it's, it's probably the, most, the wisest thing you can do is to begin to sing because God will just come and dwell in that situation when he hears his song. Christ sang before he went to the cross. It says he sang a hymn. I don't think he just sang it because he needed to encourage his spirit and bolster his emotions. I don't think that's why he sang. I think it was part of the resources that he used when he went to the cross. He needed that resource uh, <clears throat> for that experience. So 
The second point then, the first one is songs result in supernatural enablement. So if you're in a situation where you really need God's help, think to sing. Burst out into song. It's, it's one of the best things you can do in addition to prayer. In fact, when you have prayer and singing coupled together, you have a very powerful resource. I think that's one of the reasons why many of the boys in our churches tend not to want to sing because the devil, I think, knows this. And he says, well, I, w- I don't want anybody to sing because God always comes and dwells where his song is sung, and I don't want that to happen. But if, if people are going to sing, let's let the women sing. We don't want any singing men. By all means, we don't want the men to sing. So he tells little boys that it's not macho to sing, and they grow up. If people aren't very careful, they don't have a song. I remember John Risser spoke in one of our churches years ago And he made this comment. I don't remember anything else he said in that sermon, but this struck me and I never forgot it. He said, beware of the boy who has no song. He's spiritually handicapped. There's a resource he does not, I didn't say he can't be a Christian, but he's spiritually handicapped. He has a resource that he, there's a resource he does not have that he needs to be successful in the Christian life and to really be strong in difficult situations. Well, I've been alluding to the second point. Songs cause God to dwell in our experience. You know, David understood that. The very first thing he did when he became king was to set up the temple worship. And does anybody know how many people he appointed to sing full-time and paid them to do it in the temple every day? Does anybody know how many there were? Four thousand. Can you imagine? 4,000 men paid to sing full-time in the temple every day. I think David realized what I'm just telling you, that where God's song is, that's where he dwells. And he made up his mind at the beginning of his kingship that we're going to have God's presence in Jerusalem all the time. And to make sure that happens, we're going to have singers singing full-time in the temple. There was nobody particularly there to listen. They were singing to the Lord. I don't know where David got this idea. Maybe when he was out there with those sheep and he did a lot of singing there, maybe he connected the strength that he had against that lion and against that bear with the songs that he sang with his harp. I don't know. But somehow David connected the power of God and his presence with song, and he determined to have God's presence at the center of his kingdom and, and and the means by which He planned to have that happen was to have 4,000 paid men do it all the time in the temple. And I don't think there's any secret that David's kingship was the strongest uh, reign of any of the kings. In fact, if you look at the map, how large the kingdom was when he became king, and you look at the map, how large it was when he left, when he died, it was 10 times the original size. In fact, it reached almost the borders that Israel had been promised under the King David. I don't think it's any coincidence that he was a singer. In fact, it says he was a man after God's own heart, and God is a singer. Did you know that God is a singer? It says in Zephaniah that someday he's going to sing over us with joy. Now, I have no idea what that sounds like. Now, I have a son that died, and I don't, we don't quite know just how it is with departed spirits, where they are. I don't know if Jeffrey has heard God sing or not, but if he has, I can imagine Jeffrey, you have to know Jeffrey to understand that Jeffrey would be saying, Wait till dad hears this. (laughs) God is a singer. And David was a man after God's own heart. And and I think that means many things, but I think it also is connected with this idea that David is a singer and so is God. And uh, they were very, very uh, 
like in that respect. Solomon one time dedicated the temple, and I think if you recall that incident, you will recall that there was a point at which the glory filled the temple to such an extent that everybody had to leave. Nobody could stay in the temple. Does anybody know when that happened? It's when the singing began. That's when it happened. Saul was told one time he'd be filled with the Spirit. Do you know when that happened? It happened when he went out and met a group of singers coming down a hill. I mean, they're, they're, they're just incident after incident that show that God's presence is, is where the song is. That's where God's presence is. These points are all related. So the first point is songs result in supernatural enablement. The second one is songs guarantee, if they're, if they're God's song, if they're, if they're sung by hearts that are, are after God, they guarantee his presence. I don't think we can be without song and not be handicapped. And I'm not just talking about singing here in church. I told you that, that uh, William Williams people were singing while they worked. They sang on their way to the mines. They sang in the mines. They sang while they worked in the factories. They sang, they, they, they sang. it was a singing country and, it was, and there was a very powerful moving of God during that time. In fact, for many years afterward. The third thing that I want to point out is songs speak to the world of the spirit. I'd like for you to turn for this one to 2 Kings chapter 3. <clears throat> I'm amazed at uh, the many incidents that, that the Bible gives us of what happens when people use music. And I've been giving them to you all along. Uh, here's another one. <clears throat> In this particular case, Jehoram, king of Israel, who was a wicked king, went to battle with Jehoshaphat, who was a good king. That's sort of a mystery why Jehoshaphat made common cause with this man. But they ran out of water. This is the, this is the uh, incident, if you recall, where they made the valley full of ditches. Well, before they, that happened, uh, they went to the prophet. He's the one that told them to do that. And I want you to look at what happened. Second uh, Kings 3, verse 14. They come to Elisha and ask him for help because they ran out of water. And you can't fight a battle if you have a dehydrated group of soldiers. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand... Surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But because Jehoshaphat's involved, I will try to help you. Now, this is what he said. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played that the hand of the Lord came upon him and he prophesied. I think that's very interesting. Spirits respond to song. And so not only is God's presence attracted, but so spirits are attracted when singing takes place. And I think we would have reason to believe that both good and bad spirits are attracted by song. So it's pretty important what kind of song we sing. You know, somebody came up with the idea in our day, or some people came up with the idea, that it doesn't matter what kind of music you use, just so you have the right text. Well, that's a very modern idea. You go try to tell the heathen that. They know exactly what kind of music to play to summon their evil spirits. And so uh, spirits respond to song. We know in the case of Saul, David sang and the evil spirits departed. I think here we have a case where the good spirits come into the picture when God's song is sung. Number four, songs inspire prophetic insight. <clears throat> 
Now, back in the case of Jehoshaphat, I did not go down through the rest of that passage. I got started talking about something else. But if you go down through that passage, Jehoshaphat calls Jehaziel and his people prophets. Most people do not connect prophecy with music, but I want to show you that it is connected. Would you turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 25? <clears throat> First Chronicles chapter 25. <clears throat> I alluded to this earlier, but here is the passage. First Chronicles 25, verse 1. Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and Jeduthun. Now look at this. Who should prophesy with harps and psalteries, and with cymbals. See, that's what Asaph was doing back there in that incident that we had in, in uh, 2 Chronicles 20. He was prophesying. He was a musician. And David appointed these three men to be his advisors. They were all musicians so that he would have a word of prophecy, so he would have a clear word as to what God's will was in any given situation. Now, <clears throat> Are you ever in a situation where you say, I need wisdom? I really need wisdom. I'm having trouble making this decision. I'm in a very difficult place. I need, I need to know what to do. What does God want me to do? I'd like to ask, and I won't have you raise your hands. In those situations, how many of you sing? How many of you burst forth in a song as a means by which God's clear revelation will come to you in making a decision? David understood that. David understood that for him to understand God's will for the decisions that he had to make, he needed to have three men who were musicians to prophesy and give him that prophetic word. Well, Psalm 89 says, blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Does anybody know the rest of that verse? They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of thy countenance. They will have clear light upon their pathway. Those who know the joyful sound. So let's, let's review here what we've been talking about. So you need supernatural strength for a difficult situation that's beyond you. Song is a resource for that. You need to have God's presence in your life. Song is a resource for that. You need to have insight to make some difficult decision. Song is a resource for that. Song is a tremendous resource, and that's the thing that I would like for us to remember. And fifthly, song is important to God. I said there was music at creation. God's going to joy over us with singing. He is a singer. David was a man after God's own heart. God is a singer. Let's turn to Psalm 96. I'd like to spend a little time with this psalm. It actually is a psalm. It's parallel to the passage that our brother read. <clears throat> Having said that song is a resource, we want to talk a little bit about what is it that we sing about. The first thing I notice here is that singing is a command. It says, sing unto the Lord a new song. It doesn't say, you should sing. It would be a good thing if you would sing. It says, you must sing. It's a command, just like any other command. You say, well, why do you have to be commanded to sing? Well, there was a time in Israel when they should have sung, 
And they said, we can't sing the song of the Lord in, the, in a strange land. So probably when you need most to sing, you maybe won't feel like singing and maybe you wouldn't sing, but God has commanded you to sing because he knows, like every other command he gives us, that if we do what he tells us to do, it will be for our benefit. <laughs> so he commands us to sing. Uh, and he does it three times in this passage. In fact, there are 300 references to song in the Bible, and most of those are commands. Most of them are commands. Here we have it given three times. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. He tells us what we're to sing. It's a new song. And we'll talk about that as the weekend progresses. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. It tells who is to sing. Sing unto the Lord, bless his name, show forth his salvation from day to day. So it tells us what we're to sing. It, it's, it tells us what we're to sing, a new song, and we'll be talking about that as we go along through the weekend. It tells who's to sing, the whole world is to sing. God knows it'll benefit every person that does it. And it's, we're told what we're to sing. We're to sing about the salvation of God. Now, unfortunately, in our day, the word salvation is defined very narrowly. If you were to ask most people what salvation means, they would say it means to escape punishment and to go to heaven. But the word salvation is a large word. It's, it's, it's the word salvage. It means to make something good out of something bad. That's what the word salvation means. Paul says in Philippians, he's sitting there in jail and he says, I know this shall turn to my salvation. When I was a younger person, I used to think that salvation had that narrow definition. I thought, well, how is this going to turn to Paul's salvation? I mean, what's he talking about? But what he's saying is, this situation that I'm in is a bad situation. It looks like a bad situation, but it's going to turn, and it's going to turn into glory. That's what Paul was saying, and that's, that's the meaning of salvation, God's ability to turn a bad situation into a good situation. I don't know about you, but he does it in my life all the time. I mean, God is a salvation performing God. That's, that's his work, to salvage and make something good out of, of the lives of people and the situations they're in. And he does it constantly. And that's what we're to think about. And it says in verse 3, declare his glory among the heathen. I don't know what your understanding of glory is, but to me, uh, my understanding of glory is it's a manifestation of excellence. If you talk about a sunset that had glory, it's perfect. You couldn't, it's one of the most beautiful sunsets. You couldn't add anything to it. It's a, a manifestation of excellence. <clears throat> and we live in a world that when they think about God, they think negatively. They think God is some sort of a grumpy sovereign that tells people to do things that are difficult and doesn't want them really to enjoy life. That's what they think about when they think about God. And the only way they'll ever understand who he is is if we can, dis if we can declare to them the excellence of his character. And that's what he's telling us to do. Let the world know how, that God has an excellent character. For the Lord is great. And greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above gods, all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. They can't do anything. In fact, the most, the most ridiculous picture of idols in the Bible was when the children of Israel and Judah were carried into captivity. Uh, there's, and I can't put my hands on it right now, somewhere in, the, uh, in that account, that historical account. It tells about how they had these idols on their beasts of burden. And they were walking alongside holding them so they wouldn't fall off. I don't know what good gods can do if you, they can't even keep themselves on a beast of burden. You have to hold them on. 
And he says, the gods of the nations are all idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Now, I would like to just think a little bit with you about the heavens. Just to simply give you a concept of how great God is. We live in the Milky Way. They say it looks a little bit like this. It's a disc with a bulge in the middle like that. This Milky Way is 100,000 light years in diameter. Now, light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Can you imagine the distance it travels in one year? That's what a light year is. It's the distance light travels in one year at 186,000 miles a second. Now, the Earth is 6,000 years old. That means light traveling at that terrific rate of speed has now, in all of history, traveled six-tenths of one percent across the diameter of the Milky Way. The Milky Way, they say, is 10,000 light years thick. The reason this looks like a band across the sky is because we're, we're somewhere in here looking this way into it, so it looks like a band across the sky. It's 10,000 light years thick. That means that in all of history, light has traveled only six-tenths of the thickness of the Milky Way. The Lord made the heavens, and he deserves a tremendous amount of adoration and praise for the great God that he is. That's one galaxy. They tell us that there are enough galaxies out there to give every man, woman, and child in this world a galaxy for their own. So they're estimating about 7 billion galaxies. And if you think that distance is great, the distances between the galaxies is even greater. The Lord made the heavens. How many of you recognize Orion when you go out and look at the sky? The constellation of Orion. Then it has these three little stars. This star is Rigel. It's about the fifth brightest star in the sky. It's one of the brightest stars in the sky. Rigel is 500 light years away. That means that if you go out and look at Rigel tomorrow morning, you won't see it tonight, but tomorrow morning, early in the morning, right before the sun comes up, you'll see Rigel over there in the sky. Where is east? That right I'm all turned around. You'll see Rigel just above the, the horizon. Well, the light you will see when you see, a Rigel, when you see Rigel now, that light started out when Columbus discovered America. And traveling at 186,000 miles per second, it is just now arriving. In fact, Rigel might not even be there. It might have burned out 300 years ago, and it'll be another 200 years before we know it's not there. This is, a, this is the God that we are supposed to declare to the world, whom they deny and misunderstand all of the time. So, I want you to turn over to Psalm 100. Just calling attention to some things that uh, the Bible has to say. 
about singing. So it says, sing unto the Lord. Declare his glory among the heathen. It's our responsibility to make sure that nobody that, that comes in contact with us does not at least have a chance to know the tremendous power and greatness and majesty of God and to know that he's a salvation-bearing God uh, and, and a testimony from our own experience with our songs. This song says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Well, that's unique to begin with because the heathen do not make a joyful noise. Do you know why? Because they really do serve gods that are nasty. We had a, a missionary from India at our home for supper uh, not too long ago. And I said to him, what is your message to the Indian people? What unique message do you give to the Hindu people? Well, he said, the first thing we tell them is there's only one God. Because I forget how many millions of gods he says they, they actually believe in. And he said they're still counting. In other words, it's, it, they, they still don't have a complete number. They have millions of gods. And all of those gods are angry. And they have to keep those gods appeased because if they don't keep those gods happy, those gods will do awful things to them. Can you imagine the complicated process of keeping several million gods happy? So he said, our first message to them is that there's only one God. And that simplifies things tremendously for them. And it's a great relief to them to know that they only have one God to deal with. And he said, then on top of that, we tell them he's a good God. And that's even better news. We serve one very good God. It's the only good God among all the gods that anybody's ever believed in. I never heard of any of the other gods that were not angry. They're all angry gods. They're all gods that have to be appeased. They're devils. They're demons, in fact. And we have a God that says, I want to hear a joyful noise out of you. <laughs> those people that worship those other gods, they're always pleading for mercy. They're wailing, trying to make the gods pity them. And our God says, I want you to be joyful. I want to hear a joyful noise from you. Serve the Lord with gladness. <laughs> I, think we should, I think we should just revel in the uniqueness of, of the God that we serve, a God with a good, benevolent heart. It says here, <clears throat> come before his presence with singing. Now, when this was written, all of the nations of the world were ruled by kings. And uh, when you went to a king to ask for something, you always brought a present. You brought the best thing you could possibly bring. You never went into the presence of a king without a present. Well, God tells us what he's expecting us to bring if we want to come into his presence. Now, I've had a series of questions I've been asking all evening and not asking you to raise your hands because I don't want to embarrass anybody. But I'd like to, it would be interesting for me to know how many of you, when you come into God's presence, you have your devotions in the morning, you begin by singing. That you enter God's presence with song. I didn't ask you to raise your hands. This is the prescribed gift. I have to wonder if maybe sometimes God does not hear what we have to say because we didn't bring the prescribed gift. We didn't come into his presence the way he's told us to come. In fact, this is repeated. Look down in verse four. 
enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. He's told us that's how you come into my presence. Don't just come rushing in with your needs and your problems and your requests. Bring first a gift. That's how you come into my presence. Well, <clears throat> know ye that the Lord, he is God. He has made us and not we ourselves. We don't decide how we come into his presence. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him. Bless his name. I mean, come and bring a blessing to him. <laughs> we think of prayer as God needing to bless us, and that's true. But he wants us to bless him. He wants a blessing, and God is blessed when we sing. And he says, that's what I want. I want a blessing when you come into my presence. And then you can give your requests. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Well, uh, <clears throat> God is a good God. In fact, if you read down at the bottom of Psalm 96, if you'll turn back to that, I want to I just look at the last verses of that. Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. It, this, this is a good reign. He shall judge the people righteously. Not like we have often in, in, in the courts of our day. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar and the fullness thereof, let the field be joyful and all that is therein. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord, for he cometh. For he cometh to judge the earth, he shall judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. That's our God, and we're supposed to make him known among the heathen. <clears throat> now, I have just a couple comments to make about what the New Testament has to say about song. We've learned that songs are a resource for supernatural power when you need special strength, for, super, for, for having God's presence in every situation, for opening up prophecy, direction, for decisions. Uh, it's, it's the way we come into God's presence. And so we're just learning a lot of things here tonight about how important it is for us to sing in probably every situation of life. Now let's go to the New Testament. Just two things I want to notice from the New Testament. <clears throat> Number one, Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in, and I always like to tell my charismatic friends, if it was tongues, there's where it should be, right there. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in tongues. But it's not there. That's where it should be. If it's really, if, if speaking in tongues is the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's where it should be in the Bible. Speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it says. So the first point I want to make is song is the authentic expression of a spirit-filled life. If your life is not filled with song, I said earlier, you can be a Christian. I'm not saying you can't be a Christian, but you're not giving very good evidence that you're filled with the Spirit. Because this says that you're to be continually filled with the Spirit, and the evidence of that will be a song. It will be a continual song. The second thing I would like to notice <clears throat> is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Here it says, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. This is a reference to the Old Testament <clears throat> sacrifice. 
<clears throat> so here we have the New Testament counterpart of the Old Testament sacrifice. And what is it? Here it is. And let me read it again. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, <clears throat> giving thanks to his name. So the second point I would like to make is that song is the New Testament counterpart to Old Testament sacrifice. <clears throat> I'm sorry, could somebody bring me a drink? I didn't think I needed one. <clears throat> but my throat is getting a little bit dry. Now let me ask you a question. In the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice, what was it to be like? Perfect. Perfect. You didn't bring your lamb with, without a tail or with a broken leg <clears throat> or an ear that hung down. You brought a perfect sacrifice. God would not accept anything else. That's what it's saying here, that our giving of thanks which you can give thanks without singing, I, I know that. But he wants our thanks, he wants our song, he wants our, our uh, adoration to be given as a sacrifice. And I think it should be a perfect sacrifice. Now when I say perfect, <clears throat> perfect is giving it with everything you have. Now we have a man in our community who uh, <clears throat> attends some of our churches and when he's there, everybody knows he's there because he's off when he sings. I mean, he's way off. And he sings louder than anybody else. In fact, uh, they brought me in one time, uh, ushered me in, and I sat beside him in church. And he told people he would never sit beside me again because I get him off the two. <laughs> now, I have no doubt that his song is a perfect song when God hears it because he gives it all he's got. I mean, he can't do any better, and he puts his whole heart into it. So I want you to understand, I'm not saying it has to be perfect in the sense that we often think of perfect, but I do think it should be the best we can do. I don't have much time for people to say, well, I just sing. I don't go to music classes. I, 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 I just don't bother to learn. I, I'm satisfied with the way I sing. I think we should perfect our hearts. I think we should perfect our voices. I think we should do everything we possibly can to give God the best quality of song that we possibly can give. So here are two New Testament principles. Number one, song is the authentic expression of the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's another reason why we need to sing, because this is the authentic expression that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And number two, it's the counterpart of the Old Testament sacrifice, and it should be rendered with as much perfection as we possibly can give it. <clears throat> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That's Colossians 3.16. You know, Christians are joyful people. They're joyful people. And one of the best evidences of their joy is a song. I want to talk just a little bit about joy here in conclusion. You know... There are two words that express people's positive feelings. One is happiness, and the other one is joy. Now, this word is an interesting word. Does anybody know what that word means? That's an old English word we don't use very much. It is, it's in the dictionary. Does anybody know what hap is? Have to do with chance? 
It has to do with chance or circumstance. It was Ruth's hap to glean in the field of Boaz. It, it just happened that she was there. And so this is based on circumstance. And God brings many good circumstances into our lives, and, and, and we have genuine happiness. There's nothing wrong with happiness. But you have to understand that happiness rises and falls with circumstances. Our son Jeffrey died seven years ago. <clears throat> we were not happy. Our happiness totally disappeared during that time because it was not a happy circumstance. And there are many people who, that's their experience. Their happiness goes up and down because that's just the way happiness is. I went to Dr. Hess one time, who was our doctor, German Baptist, Dr. Hess, and said, what do you think of this diagnosis that every other person uh, receives who's having some kind of emotional problems, that they're bipolar? And he just threw back his head and laughed. He said, John, we're all bipolar. When our circumstances are good, our feelings go up. And when they're not good, they go down. We're all bipolar. And then we had a long discussion as to why some people uh, have the problems they have. But anyway, that's happiness. When Jeffrey died, Stephen Brubaker from Faith Builders sent me a tech, a, 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 an email, and this is what it said, and it was a very profound statement. He said, sorrow defines the difference between happiness and joy. Because when sorrow comes, happiness totally disappears, and if you have nothing else left, you really never had any joy. Because joy is a constant. It has nothing to do with circumstances. It's that sense of well-being that is given to you by the Holy Spirit that all is well, that God is good, that there's meaning in this circumstance even though you don't understand it. It's that sense of, 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 of that lift that you receive that has nothing to do with circumstances. If a man can stand at a stake and sing while his body is being burned, then certainly joy has nothing to do with circumstances. In fact, this word is a very interesting word. We all know the word for grace. Does anybody know what the word for grace is? It's the word charis. Yes. The word for joy is care. It's the same root word as this one. There was a motto at Faith Builders for years. They've taken it down now. And it said this. It says, joy is the infallible. Get that. Joy is the infallible evidence of grace in the life. <clears throat> Infallible means if there's no joy, there's no grace. If there's grace, there will be joy. And so the point I'm trying to make is that's the reason why the Christian song is constant because he has this, he has this experience in his life. Circumstances come and go. He has happiness sometimes. Sometimes it disappears. But this is always there. This is always there. And so the song is always there because the song is the expression of that joy. It's the expression of the goodness of God. It's the, it's the testimony to the nations of God's salvation working in our lives. And when I say salvation, I mean the salvaging process that's constantly turning bad to good in our characters, in our circumstances, that we just have learned to know God as a good God. <clears throat> and we express it as songs of joy. I would like to sing the last verse in closing. Uh, of 225. <clears throat> <clears throat> the takeaway from this message is that song is a resource. 
I think you people are a singing congregation, uh, especially here in church. I, I don't live among you. I don't know how many of you sing while you're working, while you're washing dishes, while you're working at the sewing machine, while you're in the shop, while you're milking the cows. I have no idea. But that's what I'd like for you to take away from this, that this is a tremendous resource for you to carry into the workplace in every aspect of life and to be a singing community, not just here in this building, but outside this building, to be known as people who, who uh, reflect the, the great and excellent character of God in all of life's situations. <clears throat> Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, when I tread the verge of Jordan. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Bear me through the swelling current, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever sing to thee, I will ever sing to thee. You just made a promise. Songs of praises, I will ever sing to thee. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful gift of song that is an essential part of your character that you have made a very strong and enduring part of our characters as well. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to make the connection between you and us in every situation of life by singing your song. And Lord, I just pray that this congregation would be known as a singing people outside of this building as well as in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.